without further ado, I thought tonight I'm going to give a talk on one of the Buddha's most, I think, important teachings of many. I'm going to read it first, uh, the epicenter of the teaching. Then I'm going to explain why these observations the Buddha is making, they're emotionally valuable for us and they can help us uh, directly address uh, the suffering and stress in our lives that's unnecessary. This is called the Two Arrow teachings and some of you might be already familiar with it so this is from the teaching when a normal person experiences a painful event they become distraught with self-pity they resist the feelings they try to escape the feelings by craving anything that makes them feel good quickly and so they become obsessed and when it doesn't work they feel two pains the original pain in the body and the other pain in their minds. It's as if they were shot with one arrow and then choose to shoot themselves with a second arrow. They fail to understand that there's another way of responding to painful events other than seeking to escape it as soon as possible. When a wise individual has a painful feeling, self-pity doesn't necessarily follow. They only feel the pain in their body, but not in their, their mind. They haven't shot themselves with a second arrow. This person understands that all experiences arise and pass on their own. All experiences aren't personal. This is the difference between the wise and the normal person. This is a, a, a longer explanation in what in Buddhism we call the first and second noble truth. The first truth is that no matter how you live your life, you're going to experience old age, sickness, death. You're going to have painful events that lead to sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. It's a happy list. You're going to be stuck with people you don't like at times. You're going to be separated from people you do love. And very often you're going to be frustrated and not get what you want. I'm sorry, that's what comes with life. There's just no way around it. And then the second noble truth is that despite this pain, we could live with it were it not for the way we respond to pain, which is very often we try to numb it as soon as possible, escape it. We try to do an end run around the experience that's inevitable in life. And of course, the Buddha calls this craving in today's language, we very often call it addiction. An addictive attempt through not only substances, but through behaviors to try to alleviate, numb, remove, escape the inevitable experiences and emotions of life. We tend to experience painful events and the responses to painful events as if they're inseparable, as if me stubbing my toe and then me going, oh, fuck, how stupid could I be? I just stubbed my toe. It can seem like that's all part of an inevitable experience, inseparable. There's no way to unpack them. One goes directly to another. After we experience any difficult event in life, it's the job of our left prefrontal cortex, Broca's region, all that Wernicke's region, to try to explain what's happening, to try to turn it into an interpretation, to make sense of why is this happening. But it's just in this making sense of life, the inner narrator, 
is what adds on very often not a sense of control, not a sense of mastery, but very often it results in the exact opposite of what we want. It deepens and exacerbates our, our pain and it adds suffering, emotional distress on top of it. So it's very un, it's not always very easy to unpack the two, but tonight's talk is about unpacking it. And it's also talking about why our response to, to painful events is often more distressful or distressing, not distressful, uh, rewind that, distressing to then the actual immediate experience of pain. So after we, we, we experience a sickness and uh, cancer, uh, a painful event, a broken leg, uh, an injury, or a loss, or a uh, unpleasant, disappointing interpersonal experience, or something that affects our tribal status, the first thing that happens is a region of your, behind, right in the back of your frontal lobe called the anterior cingulate cortex focuses attention on the physical experience of that event. And no matter what kind of physical experience, whether it's literally tissue damage or the gut punch of having a relationship and or or having a friend move away or or having someone ghost us or having uh, some kind of uh, dramatic turn of events, then there's that physiological immediate felt response that is due to fast subcortical regions of the brain. And we can't do anything about those fast responses that cause feelings or what some clinicians call somatic markers. Feelings are the way our bodies immediately respond to changes in our environment or to our bodies. Feelings are fast and they're pre-conscious and there's nothing you can do about your feelings. You can try, good luck. Benjamin Labette showed completely incontrovertible, in, uh, without controversy that Feelings arise, gut responses to external events happen about a half a second often before thought appears. The uh, right one-tenth of a second after an event happens, your feelings arise. It takes about six-tenths of a second for your brain to go, ooh, what? And organize an interpretation. Then on top of it, the amygdala becomes ever more involved. It's already involved because it created that gut response, but it can also then create bracing in your body, tensing against the experience, a kind of physiological re defense against the pain or against the emotional events that are happening. It's kind of a stress clench in the body we're becoming less and less inevitable and more where we can do something about it. But the greatest um, source of uh, suffering comes from the way we interpret what's happened. Now, the bracing, what, one thing it can do is over time, the more we tense against experience, we tense against bad news, 
we get news that there are uh, layoffs happening in our job or somebody we care about is unwell or whatever the experience, the more we unconsciously physiologically brace and anticipate the bad news comings, coming over time, our bodies will start to feel exhausted. At first they'll feel tight, but then we experience literally muscle fatigue. It's not good muscle fatigue. We haven't gone to the gym and done yoga on a mat or jog or done kickboxing. It's simply prolonged, the prolonged exhaustion of physiological tensing against experience. And that can cause collapse states that follow the anxiety states of bracing and threat detection. The greatest epicenter, though, of what the Buddha is talking about when he says the second arrow, though, is the way our representational left frontal lobes try to step in and make sense of what's happened, how we interpret the difficult experiences of our lives. Sometimes language can inhibit feelings, for example, once in a while, if we think uh, uh, we do a gratitude list or some kind of reflection on things that are still available in our life, that can lead to some amelioration. But more often than not, due to what's called mood congruence, when we're in any kind of pain, our thoughts follow along and will actually elaborate on the pain. In other words, you might have noticed it, but when you've gone in your life, I, I, all of us, I assume at one point, has gone through a breakup or a friend breakup, and how many people's brain rally and play a loving devil's advocate and say, don't worry, you're lovable, you'll find someone else. <laughs> no hands shoot up. Most due to mood congruence, our thoughts tend to not play devil's advocate when we need a devil's advocate. They do the exact, exact opposite. They jump in and they helpfully say, well, you'll never find anyone else. There's no one in New York that's going to match with you. You're alone, you know, you're alone for good and, and all that. So, and when we experience pain, the story is invariably, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Uh, this pain is always going to be here. When we experience any kind of vulnerability in our life, we project catastrophizing outcomes. This is because it was not in our interest over the course of evolution to have brains that would jump in and make us feel safer. No. Our brains are organs that primarily are set up to help us survive no matter what the emotional cost to us. Your brain doesn't care, frankly, if you are stressed out and miserable for most of your life. So long as you live long enough to pass on your genes, then that's what will get passed on through evolution. So it was, it was kind of a, it's better to if you've only once been bitten by a snake when you reached in to get berries from a bush, it's better, and then, then 10,000 times you didn't get bitten by a snake. It's still better in terms of evolution and in terms of the way our brains were shaped 
that you constantly for the rest of your life worry about getting bitten by a snake. And our brains in their natural default setting will do exactly that. Certain kinds of thought activate what's called the default mode network of our brains. You don't need to know this. It's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. It's the area of the brain that lights up when we think about ourselves. It lights up when we're not paying attention to what we're doing. And it lights up whenever we speculate about what's going to happen to us in the future. So if you'd like to know the miracle growth of suffering in your life, it goes like this, one teaspoon of just thinking about what's going to happen to you in the future or how you compare with anyone else or why you aren't going, you're doing as well as other people or comparing yourself with other people from college that are doing better or whatever is the absolute miracle growth of suffering because, and here's what is worthwhile knowing, the default mode network has direct exonic connections to your amygdala. What's your amygdala? It's the salient center of your brain. It adds fear. It adds distress. It creates a sense that you're not safe. You could think about anything other than yourself, and you would struggle to activate your amygdala. You can even think about the desperate outcomes of global warming, and still most people will be able to use their executive function and not trigger the amygdala and the intrusive, stressful thoughts. But the moment it becomes, why isn't my friend calling me? They said we were gonna do something on Friday, it's already 6 p.m., voila, suffering becomes your best friend. So, um, 2,500 years after the Buddha, a guy named Albert Ellis. Who's Albert Ellis? He is one of the founders of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and no, I am not only, I'm more from an attachment background, but Albert Ellis and cognitive behavioral therapy does have some very valuable insults. He came up with insults. <laughs> they can feel like it when you're in therapy, but they're not, they're insights. Insights can feel like insults in therapy. Uh, so he had the ABC model of suffering. A is the event, uh, act activating event. So A, you're walking down the street, you see your friend, your friend looks directly at you, you smile, you wave, you're in a hurry, they don't wave back, they don't look, their face stays at a frown, they walk right by you. And then in the aftermath, we have the interpretation or the belief about what happened. Now, Depending on how we interpret that experience, that can lead to C, which is either suffering or no suffering. For example, you see the person, they don't smile and wave back, they walk right by you while they're looking at you, and then your inner narrator, courtesy of uh, Broca's region of your brain, I believe it is, uh, says, um, that schmuck because you're Jewish like me. That schmuck, uh, I, I'm so nice to this person. I respond to all their calls. I reach out. I like actively act, asked after them. And all after all that, I see this person and they, they treat me like dirt. Like they don't wave back. They can't even be bothered to smile at me. That leads to suffering. 
you've just activated your default mode network, your amygdala. You now feel a sense of um, I'm, uh, I've been emotionally rejected. That will trigger your core shame from childhood. The times your mother or father didn't look at you with expressed delight and instead looked at you with an impassive face and you became terrified. Now that's evoking in you because you've just told yourself that the person saw you and didn't wave back. But guess what? Suppose you instead interpret it as, oh, they were lost in thought. They didn't see me at all. No suffering, no distress, no activation, no amygdala response. Your heart rate stays the same. Your skin valence doesn't change. There's no endocrine response, no cortisol. You are now fine. And the only thing that changed between those two events was not the activated the A experience, which is exactly the same. As Ellis noted, he said, very often in suffering, it's not the experience, but how we interpret, how we narrate what's happened to us. There are certain kind of interpretations known as cognitive distortions that always invariably lead to unnecessary suffering. One is globalizing or overgeneralization. It's always going to be this way. This person's never going to smile and wave at me. Um, I'll, you know, everybody I befriend is going to treat me like dirt. I don't know why I bother. Uh, I should just live alone and, and whatever. So globalizing, overgeneralizing takes a single experience and projects future outcomes that are all in line with the same painful event. It activates your default mode network. Again, you're suffering and you're suffering far more worse than just the small little event would cause. The second is, of course, catastrophizing. Your brain, by visualizing bad outcomes, suppose you get sick and you're now telling yourself it's going to get worse. I'm going to I'm going to, I'm never going to feel well. That catastrophizing can actually visualize, can generate an image in your mind and images can actually be experienced by the amygdala as if they are real events actually happening to you. Unlike language utterances, images in your mind evoke right hemispheric responses that have far greater Exonic connections to your amygdala, your uh, your the fast circuits of your midbrain. So you hold in mind even a fleeting image of something associated with a negative projection, and there's a lot more suffering. There's the fairness fallacy, which is that um, we most people feel safe with a certain amount of victimization beliefs that life is unfair to me. It's uh, that I've been singled out for suffering. We like unfairness fallacies because it helps protect us against the core shame, again, that we can experience the feeling of just sadness in the body when we go through painful events. We prefer to believe that it's all some kind of gigantic conspiracy or plot against us. But by far and away, the most significant form of um, suffering, Ellis noted uh, repeatedly, the Buddha notes over and over, is taking things personally. We maybe get downsized during the tech 
uh, uh, I don't know what we're calling it, uh, ca catastrophe or the tech business, uh, 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 massive layoffs that have happened. And then it takes a little while to find, some people can't find a new job for a while. And there's this personalizing belief there must be something wrong about me. I'm unemployable or whatever. People experience all kinds of breakups, interpersonal disappointments. We feel a sense of there's something wrong with me because of my addictive responses to stress in life. We have a tendency to take universal experiences and turn them into um, the brain explains it as if it's happening to me. There's something about my core self or about me that is causing this to happen. It's in, uh, I could go on a, a whole side tangent about core shame and body dysmorphia and all that. I love this subject, so, but I'm not. I'm just going to talk about the fact that our tendency in the aftermath of painful events is to, is to weave a story trying to explain why this has happened to me instead of reminding ourselves that virtually all experiences are universal, not in their detail, but in the general quality of them and certainly in the emotional pain that they evoke. This is a true story. Um, I tell it because I like to puncture the myth of that any experience can be entirely personal. There's a famous circuit speaker in AA who had a terrible event. After surviving cancer, he and his family were in a plane wreck. Everybody in his family died. He lay there in the plane, the fuse, the uh, damaged plane upside down for days. Bandits came and, and stole money from the family. Finally, the army came, threw him in the back of a truck with the bodies of his family. He wound up in a hospital and a body cast. Then in this belief that I've experienced something that no one else has ever experienced. I'm alone. No one can understand my pain. He tried to drink and use and drug himself to death. He failed. Eventually he got sober and he would tell the story. Well, one day when he's telling the story, a woman comes up weeping and grabbing hold to him. And when she finally stops and sobbing uh, and can speak as he's, you know, holding her. She says, you don't understand. All of my family was killed in a plane crash. I too was left in it. I too wound up in the hospital. I too tried to drink myself to death. So if that experience is not unique, guess what? I don't think that any experience I've ever had somebody can't relate to, nor any experience that you've ever had other people can't relate to, and take it out of that personalizing perspective. Emotional response reactions to painful events leads to, and this personalizing leads to craving a way out as soon as possible. Drugs, booze, cigarette, shopping, porn, gambling, uh, you name it, uh, workaholism, 
the dopamine that's quickly uh, secreted by these uh, behavioral patterns and substances create reward states that temporarily removes all of the physiological pain and all of the inner chatter, the personalizing story, and for a while we feel great. And then in about 30 minutes, all of the dopamine is reabsorbed in, from the synaptic cleft back into the receptors. You no longer feel good at all. And now the physiological pain and the emotional uh, experience comes running back and on top of it is now a story. Now this isn't even gonna work. Now I truly am alone. Now really I'm without hope. So the trying to, as the Buddha says, escape the pain makes it far worse. So how do we approach dealing with painful life experiences? Well, Ellis says, D, we, instead of interpreting things in a way that cause suffering, we dispute or reappraise our initial interpretations in a way that change the way we feel about experience. There is no true interpretation of any experience. This is not manipulative. You can, if you want, interpret any life event from a million different perspectives, tell the stories in a million different ways. Your brain is gonna helpfully tell you the worst version. You might as well learn how to actually create narratives that counterbalance and uh, remind you that these experiences, one will pass, they're not personal, they happen. And that very often trying to escape or numb the pain rather than learning to address the pain, and we'll talk about that in a second, is actually makes emotional pain worse. This requires that we actively seek out people who've gone through similar experiences. I can tell you as someone who works in counseling, it's never my job to tell someone that their pain is universal. I don't really do that if someone's especially had a significant loss or really traumatic experience. It's up for them to find support with other people because there's nothing worse than telling someone who's in a great deal of pain, well, I know what your pain's like. I, you know, I, you know, lost someone too. They need to be at a place where they are actively seeking out their relief, not being told, not being fixed. Our job at first is just to listen and create a safe container where they can be with the experience. So the next practice is a cool Buddhist practice that I really like. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that this can be so much more effective than it will sound. When I tell you this, this practice, you're gonna say, no, it's never works. It will never work for me. I'm not gonna do that. And if you try it, I guarantee you, it will work. Okay. So oh, in Buddhist uh, uh, lore, we Buddhist teachers very often have phrases that we greet difficult experiences that change the way we relate to those experiences. I was taught by one uh, famous monk, just think just this is happening now. But a teacher I really liked, Tara Brock, 
who's a very nice person, she uses the practice of thinking yes. Yes doesn't mean we agree. It doesn't mean we're happy that a friend is uh, not talking to us, that a, that a roommate is being difficult, that someone we care about is in pain, that uh, we're someone we don't want to be with is presently in our life, that someone, uh, all of the inevitable experiences, the physical pain, it doesn't mean that we're liking that is happening. Yes doesn't mean I like this. Yes means, yes, this is what's happening right now. And just this subtle switch and thinking, yes, shooting every negative experience with yes instead of, oh, no, actually actively stops the physiological bracing and resisting. We're basically saying, there's nothing I can do about this right now. At this moment in time, this event is happening. I, it's, we're not adding any other story other than, yes, how can I be with this? That, yes, I was on a spiritual vacation. And the spiritual vacation, I put it in uh, quotation marks because I, I didn't actually get to the spiritual point of it. I thought it was going to have it. Uh, it was advertised as having people of different spiritual backgrounds with no alcohol in a really warm place during February. And it sounded great. It was not expensive. I could actually afford. And we went, I mean, I went down to it and the plane was filled with evangelicals. It was for me, a Jewish Buddhist, a nightmare. Everybody there was an evangelical Christian. They were, they literally, and not the good kind. I'm sure there are the good kind, but I don't meet the good kind, but I know they're out there. They were, these were people that stood in the aisles of the plane. The pilot was begging them to take their seat. They were ignoring him. The waitresses couldn't come. When we got to the place, some uh, evangelical Nazi would wake up at five in the morning and claim all of the seats by the pool and put towels on every single one of them. So there was no way to get even within a walking distance of the pool. There was when we we would wait in line for the buffet and it would be right when they rang the bell and a horde of them. Uh, because they befriend themselves in groves. I mean, just absolute lemmings just came and lined up before us. Suddenly there, were, there was one person, suddenly 25 people were ahead of us. And I envisioned like the, you know, whatever thing being all eaten out because I have food anxiety at times at these buffets. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway. After about a day, I was having the worst experience of my life, practically. Yeah. And I just, I was just so happened to remember that Tara Brock teaching that I had heard on tape. This was back in 2003 or two. And I started thinking, yes, every time <laughs> I ran into another evangelical, yes, you're here. Yeah, you're here. It rained one day. Yes, it's raining. Um, <laughs> Suddenly I had the best vacation you could buy. Well, imagine, I, nothing changed. They didn't go away. 
nothing was altered except the way I responded to it. So the third is soothing and titration. We don't, we can train our cingulates, which focus our attention, to focus away from fixating on the pain and focus on areas of the body, for example, that are not. That doesn't mean we're trying to escape the pain. Titration means you spend two breaths with the pain and then two breaths with a part of your body that doesn't feel pain. Breathe in, feel the pain. Breathe out, find a part of your body that feels really relaxed. Or it means not trying to resist the uh, uh, difficult event, but bringing your attention wider. The Buddha noted that if you put a lump of salt into a small glass of water, then the entire glass of water becomes undrinkable. But if you put that lump of salt into a reservoir, you can still drink from it because you've diluted the attention or the your mind has become much wider and open. So we're not denying that something difficult is in our life, but we're broadening our attention to every other thing that's present in our life that's not going wrong, that's not painful. So yes, right now there's this problem with my relationship, with my job, with my family, with my body, but there's also this and this and this also. We're not denying running from it, nor are we at the same time allowing the thing that's causing distress to hijack the cingulate and focus the spotlight of attention on it because the left hemisphere, which has spotlight attention, will then use that to turn it into triggering default mode network stressful ideations. Um, endeavors that really help. Um, if you are with someone that you're in a safe relationship with and you feel intimate with them, any kind of cuddling or holding releases oxytocin. Oxytocin doesn't get rid of pain. It's not heroin, but it significantly diminishes pain. That's why when mothers are breastfeeding or why people are in love very often, the other negative experiences of their life suddenly vanish as if they didn't ever occur, as if suddenly it doesn't matter that I hate my boss and their drive, my work is driving me crazy and my family is a mess because now I'm in love because your oxytocin levels are soaring. And that actually reduces, it's an analgesic, it reduces pain. It also stops the excessive ideations of your front left hemisphere. Um, things like, uh, getting a massage, yoga, lying in savasana, all these different meditation, all of these practices help you be with emotional difficulties, soften them, but you're not trying to escape. You're simply blunting the experience. Task positive activities, people who know how to use, uh, do things with their hands, notoriously feel less emotional pain response to difficult events. So for example, if you're someone who loves to paint, draw, play an instrument, cook, garden, all of that, because it's task positive, it's gonna shut down your default mode 
you're going to have less ideation. Your brain's going to then trigger your amygdala less. You're going to have less stressful response. You're going to feel better about it. So task positive activities. That's why people love flow states because when you're in a flow state of gardening, I don't know how gardening could get anyone in a flow state. I am not someone. People also say woodworking. Who stands around and works with wood? I don't know. I'm from New York. But people say woodworking is another way that people get into task positive flow states. I will take your word for it. Um, Anything, though, that focuses your attention on what you're doing to your hand, with your hands, uh, notoriously, is a, creates a flow state. Sent me Holly, uh, the great psychologist with Maslow, said that those are the most pleasant states in life, and clinical studies bear it out. So keys to reducing suffering, frame experiences in ways that undermine personalizing and catastrophizing outcomes. Find actively people who've been through similar experiences. Listen to them so that you will experience in as a, a real hearing someone explaining what they felt in a similar experience. It will make you feel less alone. The less alone you feel, the less overwhelmed you'll feel, the more hopeful you'll become to think yes or okay, this is happening right now. That's as a way to stop the bracing, respond to a difficult event in a different way. Three, soothing and titration. Don't try to escape emotionally painful events, spend time to even, you know, we'll talk about feeling them, but um, don't try to escape, be with it, find soothing activities. Finally, what our meditation tonight is going to be, it's going to be on what's called Vedana Nusati. The Buddha noted that there's an opportunity when painful events happen. We can't do anything about the initial pain. We can't do anything about the fast somatic markers in our bodies that register the gut punch or the, the physiological clench. But what we can do is instead of we can interrupt the next step where the suffering comes in, where we start telling the story of why this pain is happening. And instead, we can learn to simply be with and create what's called a kind, compassionate awareness of the pain using our titrating. And we relate to it now, not in how can I get rid of this, but how can I just observe these feelings, soothe them, watch them change, and then not add on all the unnecessary suffering? So I hope that talk was in some way of any interest to you. If not, I'll try again next Tuesday. But um, find a really comfortable seated position. And... When you are comfortable, you do not have to sit ramrod like a meditator. If somebody needs to use the bathroom, by the way, there's one also through that. So if you ever need, you don't have to go through the entire room. You can go that way or that way. Um, in this meditation, just be as comfortable as you can. Um, we're not doing a... Uh, practice tonight where we're trying to 
uh, create a kind of motionless response. If you do at, at any point need to reposition your body, just think for a moment before you do it, how can I shift in a way that won't disrupt anyone sitting directly next to me? So just a little moment reflection, oh, my knee's feeling a little numb, my back's a little painful, my neck feels a little, before we just uh, like try to get rid of that feeling, just think, okay, how can I respond to this in a way that's very slow and measured and quiet so that I can make myself feel better without disrupting anyone else? So if you like, I close my eyes. That's in the early Buddhist tradition. Uh, we close our eyes because we're going to bring, be bringing our attention within. And sight is such a dominating experience. It tends to focus attention. So when we close our eyes, especially when we're in a safe space surrounded by safe people, then what we can do is bring our attention to the sensations of our body. And for this practice, we're first gonna just train the mind not to immediately go to the part of the body that feels uh, most uncomfortable. First find a sensation that feels pretty good. Now for me, that's very often the palms in my hands or the, through softening my eyes, I very often feel the area right behind my eyes sometimes can feel pretty good. Now bring your attention to the most difficult sensation in your body. It could be a slight headache or slight back pain or maybe it's a pain from craning our necks over smartphones or maybe it's some kind of pain in the belly or abdomen. Now, as a simple titrating 
experience. Just take one breath into the area that feels uncomfortable and try to use the in-breath as a way to soften the clenching against the discomfort or any tension in the body nearby to see if you can breathe in and feel a kind of warm attention moving through this area of your body. And then as you breathe out, find the area of your body that feels pleasant and try to slowly spread that ease through your body. So breathing in, soften, discomfort, breathing out, try to spread ease. Another variation is you can breathe in and out, breathing in, lighting up with awareness any area that feels uncomfortable with a soothing attention as you breathe out, try to release, and then go to a pleasant sensation for the next in-breath and out-breath. And as you breathe out, spread these. Now, if you get to a place where the discomfort has been softened or both the discomfort and the ease have both softened into a kind of uniform experience. If your mind is anxious, just try to extend the lengths of your out-breath. That's actually inhibitory. It allows the mind or nervous system, frankly, to downregulate. So longer out-breaths. But if you're feeling tired, focus on your in-breath. Really bring in that oxygen. Fill up your lungs, belly and your lungs. Just and then just release the out-breath. You can think of meditation as a interactive practice where you know your internal experience and then the more you want to bring ease in, you extend and soften, you don't push out, you just release very slowly your exhalations. But if you start to feel drowsy, then we focus on the in-breath and really fill up the body and 
if you want, you can tense some muscles in your lower legs. you like, you can also think one as you breathe in. As you breathe out, think two. As you breathe in again, think three. Next exhalation, think four. And when you breathe in thinking five, you're gonna start counting back down to one. So the next exhalation is four. And so a very simple practice is counting from one to five and back down with odd numbers on the in-breath. And keep just trying to soothe your body using the breath. Your thoughts will wander away. It's just quite natural that we haven't very often associated breathing with attention. Most of the time when we're simply breathing and doing nothing, it gives us permission to wander off to thoughts that are more enticing. So one of the great practices is to just without adding any judgment at all, just gently bring your attention back to just the simple act of breathing 
Or if you find breathing to be not effective for you, that's fine. Just listen to the sounds arising and passing around you. The more we simply practice catching our awareness, drifting away into thought, and finding a way back to the present experience, that simple practice alone trains our mind when we are in real suffering, when intrusive thoughts lead to insomnia or worry. We now have trained our singulates to be strong enough to bring the focus away from the thoughts and back to the present time. So you're wiring in a way out of suffering just by every time the mind wanders, just without any reaction, just noting what thought felt important, promising it you'll return to it after the meditation. And just bring your attention back your body, to the sounds, or if you want, you could even conjure an image of a place you feel really safe. You just hold that image in mind. So at this point, you can stay with so if you like, you can practice some of the tools we talked about. So bring to mind any recent events, but not an event that's so painful. Certain events can be so painful, they need to be held in a container at first with someone that can help us process them. But any disappointing, unpleasant, 
experienced interpersonal rupture. Just bring it to mind, just as an image, don't retell the entire story of what's happened. Just find the most, what we call salient image. We want to allow your body to generate a felt response. similar to the response that is occurring when we're lost in worrying, personalizing, catastrophizing thoughts. And when you have the right image in mind, you'll probably feel some kind of tightness in your belly, a hollowness in your chest, a clenching in your shoulders. And just whisper to the degree you can, yes, I can be with this. It doesn't mean I like the feeling, but we're not adding any story to it. And remember, you can titrate back to feelings in your body or images that are pleasant. So you can go back one into the triggering image and then hold an image of someone in your life who cares about you deeply Someone who sees your innate work. Someone who's expressed delight to you. And then just gently, slowly, allow yourself to Practice being with, softening, not adding any story, and then going to an image or part of the body that feels good. We're not resisting anything. Just creating a safe pace space or place or practice where feelings can arise, where feelings can slowly change, where feelings can, even over time, abate.
So let go of the difficult image and just bring your mind back to sensations in the present moment that feel soothing. The support of the earth beneath you. The sensation of the breath bringing life into your body. knowing that you've just, to any degree available to you today, have developed the ability to respond rather than react and run from pain, difficult experiences. <laughs> 